Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Over the past few weeks, we've been exploring different aspects of work. Work shapes our lives and shapes the world around us. It can be incredibly rewarding and fulfilling. It can also be a source of despair and humiliation. It's often somewhere in between. A feature of the late 20th and early 21st century is the growing insecurity of work for so many. And it's that insecurity and precariousness that we'll be talking about today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who wish to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net. We're part of the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. And the Crawford School is, of course, one of the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy schools. There's a great range of degree programs and short courses that are available at Crawford. Just check out the website crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. I'm Anagreta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician, and I'm the Human Futures Fellow from the College of Health and Medicine. And I'm delighted to be in the studio today again with Sharon Bessel. Hi, Anagreta. It is great to be here. And it is so exciting to be continuing this series of conversations with some incredible thinkers. And there is more today. We had someone very special today. And of course, insecure work, which is what part of what we're going to be talking about today is a characteristic of the informal sector across across the global south. And it's often been a distinction between the so-called and developed and developing world throughout the 20th century, you know, whether the majority of people were working in the informal or the formal sector. Employees in wealthy countries in both the public and the private sectors were likely to have a range of benefits associated with secure work and a guaranteed income. But in the 21st century, the nature of work has been changing and changing quickly and dramatically. Insecurity is becoming more common across the globe. We're seeing the breakdown of this this divide of formal and informal work. In Australia, the Australian Council of Trade Unions suggests that there are 2.3 million casuals, over a million so-called independent contracts, and over 400,000 fixed-term contracts. And increasingly in Australia and across the globe, we're seeing so-called zero-hour contracts, which offer no security of income whatsoever. And it's deeply disturbing that this is becoming more and more common. So what do we make of this growing precariousness? How do we reclaim ideas of work that offer dignity and security 
and time to do other things that we value. To explore these fundamentally important issues, with us today, we are delighted to welcome back Guy Standing. Guy joined us late last year as part of our wellbeing series. And Guy, we are so pleased that you can join us again today to talk about the rise of the precariat and the nature of work in the 21st century. Guy Standing is well known to many of our listeners. He is Professorial Research Associate at SOAS at the University of London. He's a founding member and honorary co-president of the Basic Income Earth Network, a non-governmental organisation that promotes a basic income for all. Guy has worked at a number of universities, including here in Australia, Monash and Sydney universities. His career has included a range of roles within the International Labour Organisation. He's the author of a dozen books, including The Precariat, The Dangerous New Class, and the third edition of The Corruption of Capitalism is released this year. Guy's work is driven by a commitment to the idea that people have a right to equal basic security and that social and economic policies should be oriented to the steady realisation of basic economic security for everybody. Guy argues that without such basic security, one cannot have full freedom. And of course, this is fundamentally important to ideas around work. Guy, thank you so much for joining us today. Guy, can we begin by asking how you would describe the realities of work in the 21st century? Yes, I think we're in a very uh, critical moment when we're in the middle of the global transformation akin to Karl Polanyi's idea of a great transformation. We've been living through a disembedded phase of global capitalism in which in the 1980s with Thatcher and Reagan and the Mont Pelerin Society and the monetarists and so on, they forged a an attempt to have a global open market system. But what's actually happened since that period is that we've had the emergence of rentier capitalism. More and more, the income is flowing to the owners of property, financial property, physical property, and intellect, so-called intellectual property, and less and less has been flowing to those who rely on labor and work. And in that context, the fun- what we co- what the economists call the functional distribution of income has become more and more unequal with the share of national income in every part of the world going to labor declining and the share going to capital mainly in the form of rents has been increasing. And what this has meant is that a new class structure has been taking place across the world in which we've got a a, a disgustingly affluent uh, plutocracy who make billions when there's a recession and billions when there's a period of boom. They just continue to make billions. Below them is an elite who are part of the rentier system. They're making those money from rent mainly. And then there's a salariat, a, a, a shrinking proportion of the population who have got employment security, they've got pensions, they've got paid leave, they've got paid maternity leave, maternity leave, you name it, they've got a lot of benefits. This group is still uh, very affluent, making a lot of money from outside the labour market, 
but they're shrinking in terms of numbers. And then below them is the shrinking proletariat, which, of course, was the main class of industrial capitalism, uh, where people were habituated to undertake stable, full-time labor, particularly if you were a man. And the breadwinner social security system went along with it. Uh, Labor regulations went along with it. Uh, Collective bargaining and trades unions were built for that era. But that's shrinking too. And it's below them that the precariat has been growing dramatically over the last 50 years. Now, since I wrote the book, The Precariat, The New Dangerous Class, at the beginning of 2011, it's been translated into 23 languages. uh, And every single day, I receive emails and messages from people around the world who say, I am part of the precariat. And it's, it's a reality which has been sharpened by first the financial crash of 2007, 2008, and now, of course, COVID, the COVID pandemic, where governments have systematically propped up the system by augmenting the incomes and security of the elite, the plutocracy, and the salariat, whereas the precariat is now in even greater difficulty. And I think the important thing to understand is the nature of the precariat. Uh, Ever since I first started writing about it, I've been emphasizing the following points, but still commentators think that it's all about uh, temporary jobs, casual jobs, uh, and and short-term contracts. That is part of the precariat, but it is not, repeat, not the most important part. Much more important is to understand that if you're in the precariat, there are three dimensions of being in the precariat. The first is you have distinctive relations of production. That's a Marxist term, doesn't matter. But the essence of that is this unstable labor. I hate the term precarious work or precarious labor for the reason I'll come to in a moment. It's unstable. It's insecure. But critically, if you're in the precariat, you have no occupational narrative to give to your life. You don't feel in control of developing your capabilities, your competencies, and a trajectory where you are developing yourself through your patterns of labor and work. In addition to that, if you're in the precariat, you have to do a lot of work that is not labor. And one of the important challenges for those who are interested in work in the 21st century is to reconceptualize what we mean by work. And I've said in my books that basically we should start again with the ancient Greeks who divided time into five five activities. The first being labor, which was done by the slaves, by the metics, by the banosoi in ancient Greece, but not by the citizens. The citizens did work, which was mainly among friends, relatives, around the home, praxis, as the Greeks called it, 
and it's part of reproduction. Now, the irony, of course, is that in the 20th century and today, the work that is done by more people for more time than any other form of work is treated as non-work. And that, of course, is the work of care, mainly done by women. But if you're in the precariat, it's not just that form of unpaid work that you have to do. You have to do a lot of work for labor, a lot of work off workplaces, outside labor time. And much of that work is seeking labor or having to satisfy the state in having to do form filling, queuing, applying for benefits or whatever it is. A lot of work that doesn't get counted. And in addition, if you're in the precariat, this is the first time in history when a mass number of people are having to perform labor that is below the level of their education. That never happened in the 19th century or any period before that. Our education formally is much greater than the level of labor people can expect to obtain if you're in the precariat. Now, the second dimension is that the precariat has distinctive relations of distribution. And what this means is that unlike the old laborist model, unlike the salariat, people in the precariat have to rely solely or almost solely on money wages. Money wages that are increasingly volatile and uncertain and increasingly low. So that the real standard of living of people in the precariat has been going down and down. And this leads to the second aspect, which is that people in the precariat have to rely on debt in order to maintain or try to maintain a standard of living to which they've become aspirationally attuned. But they can't succeed. So each time there is a crisis, millions of people in the precariat are tumbling into a lumpen underclass, homeless, in the streets, suicidal, suffering from mental health problems, etc. And that coincides with the loss of rights. And the final point, and then I'll wind up, I'm sorry to give this long definition, but it's important to understand it. The final part is the most important of all, which is that if you're in the precariat, you are having distinctive relations to the state. You are losing social rights, you are losing civil rights, you are losing economic rights, and you're losing political rights because you don't see representation in the state of your interests and aspirations. And that's why the most important aspect is that you feel like a supplicant, relying on people doing you favors, charity. And that is existentially terrible. It is. And in fact, it leads very almost perfectly into the, the next question we wanted to ask you, which was about that transition um, from citizens to Denzians. Is that the, that's the terminology? Yeah, that you use. Well, tell, tell us what, what, why you use that term and what it is to transition from being a citizen, why we're not citizens or why a good proportion are not citizens and they become Denzians. Yeah, the, the term denizen was, was used uh, in the 
18th and 19th century to imply someone who was in transition from being an alien to being a citizen. And it was a sort of transitional process. The way I've used it uh, in, in my work is that it's a transition the other way around. Millions of people, without realizing it until they need the, the rights that they they need, are becoming denizens. They're losing social rights, for example. We used to have universal rights of some sort, um, but more and more people find they don't get it. They don't get a rights-based access to benefits or services. And in particular, if you're in the in the precariat, you don't get civil rights. The whole idea of Magna Carta and the Charter of the Forest back in 1217 was that equal civil rights, and that meant due process for everybody. You would not be condemned. You would not be sanctioned or, or penalized or fined unless there had been a proper legal process. Millions today don't have access to civil rights. They don't, and this is not just migrants or minorities, it's increasingly if you're in the precariat. I've just seen the latest figures with Britain's means-tested universal credit, and more people per each year are sanctioned, that is, lose their benefits, lose their entitlement benefits, than are fined in all magistrates' courts for misdemeanors. In other words, you have millions of people who are losing entitlement to benefits solely because a bureaucrat decided that they've done something wrong. But there's been no trial. There's been no representation. There's been no independent uh, decision-making. This is a bureaucratic decision to save public money or whatever they wanted to call it. And the precariat is the victim. And this, I know, is the case in Australia. It's the case in every country where means testing and behavior testing has become the hallmark of the so-called welfare state. Guy, we've we've seen, as you've said, we've seen very similar things happening in Australia as as in the UK. Uh, we've had something that is colloquially known as robo debt, where people are sanctioned for uh, breaches of welfare conditionality and then receive a debt, which is sometimes an accurate debt, sometimes not. And there have been rulings against that practice, but still the government continues uh, to use that kind of of system of penalisation against people uh, who are receiving benefits. But I, I wanted to, to to ask you about the concept of full employment. And once the welfare state was very closely bound up with this concept of full employment, or at least full male employment, but we now see, as you've talked about, not just increasing casualisation, but this whole raft or this whole bundle of insecurities that people are facing. Is that that once held vision of full employment, something that we should be returning to, or do we need different ways of thinking in the 21st century? Is full employment no longer the language or the, the vision that's going to deal with these deep challenges that you've outlined? I think that's a very good question. I, I don't like the term full employment. We've never had full employment, except in slave societies. They had full employment. They had full employment, all right. Um, but as you say, when they had the era of Keynesianism 
in the middle decades of the 20th century, it was male full-time full employment, whereas women were a secondary labor force and they were treated as such with fewer benefits, etc., fewer entitlements and so on. It was a fraud, to be put it bluntly. Um, I don't think it's a desirable uh, objective in the 21st century because it leads to justification for further lowering wages or for deregulating protective uh, measures. And I think the, the unions have become reactionary in the double sense in trying to keep the rhetoric of their heyday for a period which is aspirationally much more interesting. I think there's a potential future to be built around combinations of different forms of work, not just in jobs. Why do you want to put a, a fetish of jobs? If you had, if you said to everybody in the 19th or the 18th century or any other century that James Sussman might have talked to you about, putting people into jobs would have been ridiculous. In fact, the term job originated as somebody who's doing something of very little worth and very little um, dignity. You know, a job was something short term without any end and blah, blah, blah. So I don't want to see things like a job guarantee or uh, public works being used to dragoon people into full time jobs. I don't think that's a worthy progressive uh, agenda to take into the 21st century because most people want to work. I want to work. I work far harder today than when I had a job. And I think that applies to a lot of people at different ages. We all want to work to improve. We want to work on our enthusiasms. We want to work on our development of our capabilities, uh, our creativity, and we want to work in caring for those we love, caring for the community, and ecological work, caring for reproducing our links with nature. All of that is contrary to the jobs orientation of those who talk about full employment. Because basically, most jobs are resource depleting and ecologically damaging so this false god of GDP growth is something that we should debunk and do as much as we can to debunk, just as we should debunk the, the false concept of labor as work, because that denigrates women's care work. It denigrates all the work that we would like to do, which is reproductive work, preserving our culture, our community, and therefore we've got to think differently. And that's why the unions have been losing the support of the precariat. I've always joked that when I've been talking to precariat groups around the world before the pandemic hit, that if I wanted to clear the room and get them rushing for the bar, then I'd start talking about trade unions. Because basically they say they'd use Anglo-Saxon words to uh, on the way out. And that, I, I'm afraid, is a reality. But I believe in unions. I believe in collective voice. I believe in representation. But the unions have still got a long way to go to transform 
themselves and their character. If you confront a trade union leader with the choice between extra jobs and ecological safety, they'll go for extra jobs every time or nearly every time. That's wrong. That's wrong. And I support the Extinction Rebellion precisely because it's helping to alter the vocabulary, the way we look at work, the way we value our uses of time. And we are seeing a wonderful transformation gradually taking shape. What is wrong with being lazy, being idle? The ancient Greeks, Aristotle said, urgia, that means being idle, is the most vital activity because it re-energizes you. It gives you a different perspective. It nurtures the creative side and the political side of deliberation. We have to really think, what is our objective? And our objective should be including something that I'm writing about a lot now, but this is also mentioned in my books, commoning. We should increase the value of the commons. I've written a book called Plunder of the Commons, and really it is increased inequality and it is diminishing the quality of life by the plunder, the privatization, the commodification of our commons. We need to resurrect commoning as a central form of work. And that, I think, is a wonderful objective of progressive politics today. This is exactly the reason we thought it was a great time to talk about work. It's been a topic of conversation um, with our previous guests, uh, with Marilyn Waring, talking about gender in work and with James Sussman. It is time for us to think about new ways of imagining work and the role that it plays in our society. The 40-hour week is not set in stone. The, the fact that we, that we uh, believe that we work Monday to Friday can be seriously challenged. So how do we how, how do we understand what we how we value work at the moment? So we've talked about the kinds of works that are remunerated and how work is valued. But before we move on to new ideas and new solutions, let's understand who it is at the moment who's determining how work is valued and what kinds of work have value in our society. How do we how do we do that at the moment? Well, we do it at the moment through uh, what I was talking about earlier about measuring social and economic progress through a false concept called GDP, gross domestic product, which was a a concept formulated in the 1930s and 1940s, basically for a war economy. So we, we treat as creating value anything that increases GDP. So if you produce more nuclear weapons or more tanks, you increase GDP. If you spend more time caring for your loved ones in the lockdown, you decrease GDP. That must be a bad thing. Well, that's a ridiculous way of thinking, if you think about it. And it's about time we started to mock that whole perspective. Some people are doing so, but more of us need to do so. We need to reconceptualize what we mean by work. You know, the 20th century was the most stupid in history when, as we talked about, unpaid care work ceased to be called work. Ridiculous. Whereas going into an office and spending time in boring meetings counts as work and increasing GDP. So we need to reconceptualize and develop our vocabulary and our imagery in better. That's why I think commoning is a very 
good way of bringing it in. Uh, commoning means shared activities. It means focusing on use value, not exchange value. It embraces things like allotments and community gardens and, and networking, community work, voluntary work. Care work in its broader sense, not just looking after children, which is obviously important, or looking after elderly, but care for ourselves and care for a more general type of society. So I'm, I'm increasingly supporting those who favor degrowth rather than uh, accelerated growth. It's a false god which suits business interests and those who are making profits from property, but it actually doesn't help advance the precariat. Now, the good news is that the precariat is growing and becoming more aware of the ridiculous uh, unfairness of what's confronting us. And the good news further is that the what I call the activists in the precariat, the people who support populists like Donald Trump and Boris Johnson and Morrison and others, are the shrinking proportion of the total. Whereas the educated part of the precariat, who come out of university and college and don't see a future, but they want a future, not just for themselves, but for their children or potential children and for society, this part of the precariat is looking at work and leisure in a different, more uh, enlightened way. And I think that's good news because they will start giving young politicians backbones to, to advance a more enlightened approach. Guy, I'm, I'm really fascinated and, and feeling quite optimistic to hear you, you talk in that way because I reflect back on, on some things that you'd written around the protests in 2011 in the wake of the global financial crisis. And you were making the point then that people were at the stage where they knew more about what they were against than what they were for. And you also noted at the time that that would change. And when I hear you talking this way, it sounds to me as though you think things have have changed that we are starting to see the emergence of a, a a movement against the status quo, where there is an understanding not just of what we're against, but what we need to be struggling for. Is that a, a reasonable summary of where you're thinking at the moment? Yeah, um, in the 2011 book, um, I wrote that there were going to be days of rage. That was the term I used. And on page one, I predicted that if the aspirations and insecurities of the precariat were not addressed, we would see a political monster. And it was incredible that in November 2016, I started receiving emails from many people all over the world basically saying, your monster has arrived. And that, of course, was Donald Trump. And Donald Trump has used fear and uh, populism and appealing to the past to mobilize what I call the activists in the precariat, the people who have not got a lot of education, but they've fallen out of old proletarian communities into the precariat. These people support neo-fascists. Let's be blunt. But the progressive part will not go in that direction, and that part is growing. 
And I gave a talk recently, and I'm getting to the answer to your question, Greta, I hope, where I gave a talk recently in Brazil about the precariat in Brazil. And it, the title of the talk, which I think could be given this title of this discussion, is Anger in the Precariat. And this anger has changed character as the composition of the precariat around the world has been changing. And I was very interested that uh, a young Chinese woman did a wonderful PhD uh, dissertation on the growth of the Chinese precariat in cities. And she based her uh, analysis on my concepts. And it was a beautiful thesis because she was basically saying it's the young, educated part who are the angry ones who are going to demand change. And you may have heard recently that there is a, a movement in China taking shape called lying flat. Lying flat. Beautiful term. And according to it, millions of young Chinese workers in jobs are doing everything possible to shirk or to take it easy or to break the rules because they're being overexploited through full-time, full employment. And it's a good way of expressing anger because it's a form of sabotage, a very underrated form of revolt. It's not the only form of revolt that's taken place. We ha now have, like as I mentioned earlier, the Extinction Rebellion. We now have precariat groups all over the world. Artists are expressing precariat themes in, in their different forms of art. I, I discussed that in the preface of the latest edition of the precariat has just come out. And I think the artist that most embodies the precariat is Banksy. Banksy is, he, some of his things, I, I just, you know, I marvel at how he captures the essence of being in the precariat. And, and he's not alone. There are others doing beautiful work uh, around the world. And this is helping to increase the subversive part of being in the precariat. And this subversive part is not wanting to be idle in the in this negative sense. It's wanting to liberate time, to increase our control of our time, both in each day and each life, increase that time. At the moment, the precariat suffers from what I've called the precariatized mind. You don't know what is the best thing and the best way of combinations of your time. You do a bit of this, a bit of that, a bit of that, multitask, blah, 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 blah. And you basically lose control of your time. And this, I think, is the essence of the political challenge in the area of work. We need to trust people. We need to have policies that increase trust in others, as we like to give trust to ourselves, why shouldn't we trust others? 
The social policies towards labour over the last 100 years have relied on fear. Fear and insecurity. And politicians have a fear of fear-reducing polities. That is a terrible situation. And the young who are in the precariat, who are going to be the vanguard of change, they understand that that's a fraudulent prospectus. And whether it's in Australia or any other part of the world, these are the people who are going to be the angry ones after this lockdown period and the pandemic. They are going to be demanding changes, not tinkering at the edges, but transformational changes. Guy, I think that's the perfect place for us to take a short break. But listeners, if you are enjoying this conversation as much as Anna Greta and I are, do not go away. We'll be back again with Guy Standing in just a moment. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. Anna Greta and I are here with Guy Standing, and we are talking about not just work, but the state of the world at the moment. Um, Guy, I wanted to pick up on something that you wrote in the preface to your book, The, the Precariat, that really struck me, because I think it is so powerfully true. Um, and you wrote that the book stemmed from anger at mainstream policymakers and the media who are so bereft of empathy with the precariat and the growing number of people who are not able to claim their citizenship rights. And and I think this, con- this, this concept of empathy is so fundamentally important. How do we begin to generate the empathy that we have either lost or is missing from our current public discourse. Yeah, that's a very good way of introducing the prognostic part of our discussion. The value of empathy is something the ancient Greeks understood very, very well. It meant being able to put yourself in the shoes of another person being able to say, I may not agree with you, but I can understand where you're coming from and I can understand how you are adapting to your circumstances. I might do be different. We need to have policies and structures that give back that sense of empathy to all of us. If you go down the road of means testing Uh, and behavior testing for those in desperate need, 
you are automatically dividing society into a them and us. Because you hope you will never be in that position and therefore you feel pity for them. But that's not empathy. Empathy is being able to have compassion and to be able to understand the sense of solidarity, the human condition. Whereas the divisive type of policies reduces solidarity. It reduces the sense of a compassionate society. And this is, I think, what neoliberalism has done. It's divided people into winners, meritocratic people, and losers, uh, and people who are failures, and, and skivers, and scroungers, and all the other pejorative terms that come with it. I think this is a denial of the Enlightenment values of liberté, fraternité, égalité, and it's a denial of the human condition, because the human condition is initially, you know, it's almost Darwinian that the essence of our survival as a species has been a solidarity, a sense of reproduction of all of us, and a sense of humility in the sense that we all could be losers. And if we're not careful, we all will be and are losers because we are neglecting the values of reproduction, the values of nature, the values of being part of an ecosystem. And we're only one part of it. So for me, empathy is, is vital. And of course, the victims of the loss of empathy are the precariat. They are the ones being treated as losers and as people who have to adapt to a precariatized existence, which the affluent elite would never dream of accepting for themselves or for their families or friends. This is, this is a divisive system that's going to become more and more explosive. And it's got worse since 2011 because inequalities have grown, insecurities have grown, and we suffer from a system of uncertainty. What uncertainty means is unknown unknowns. This is already the sixth pandemic of the 21st century. And of course, we all learned during the past year and a half that the resilience of each of us depends on the resilience of everybody else. This is a wonderful lesson because we need to strengthen collective social resilience. And that is why I've been supporting basic income for many, many years, but we'll come to that probably. Well, no, th so that is, that's the next topic of conversation. And, uh, you know, Sharon and I um, find ourselves quite frequently talking on about the value of caring. We have a hashtag, value caring. Um, and we're particularly interested in thinking about how our policy approaches can improve um, the way that we can care for ourselves and care for our community. And as you said, that's become very obvious during the uh, coronavirus pandemic, the tremendous important importance of that caring and caring for the world around us, caring for the environment as really really a tremendously important part of contending with climate change. And so uh, let's talk a bit, bit about the universal basic income or, or something similar, and there are other models out there. How might this change the nature of precariousness and the nature of work? How do you see this? Well, during the past year, uh, year and a half, 
I've been asked to do well over a hundred uh, Zooms uh, around the world uh, on basic income. It's been a sea change in the sense that now millions of people around the world are, are supporting it. We have experiments going on in various parts of the world in 45 US cities, for example, the basic income pilots. I've been involved in doing pilots in four continents, as it happens. And I think the sense of legitimizing moving towards a basic income has been advanced uh, tremendously. Um, my book on basic income and how we can make it happen has again been translated into many languages. And uh, I, I think we have a 50% chance of a major country introducing a basic income within the next year. Um, now, we've done pilots. And it's very clear that when you have a basic income, you the real justification is ethical. It's a matter of common justice to have a basic income. It's a, it, you can interpret it as a property right in the sense that the income and wealth of every single one of us is far more to do with the collective efforts of the many generations before us, right? And in a sense, if you allow private inheritance of private riches, private wealth, which is a lot of something for nothing for a minority, then in a sense, a basic income for everybody should be seen as a common dividend on the collective wealth. Even someone like Warren Buffett uh, openly admits that most of his income and wealth is due to society, not to him. Okay. And I think this is an honest statement. So it's a common justice thing. It's a religious justice. It's an ecological justice. It also enhances freedom. Every politician says they believe in freedom. Well, okay, here's an opportunity to enhance real freedom, full freedom, so you can make choices, so you don't feel dominated. And it's a chance of giving basic security will lead to better health. In our pilots, that's been the biggest effect. If people have a basic income, their mental health improves, their, their physical health improves, and they do more work, not less. That's what we found in every pilot. And it's improved the status of women. It's improved the status of people with disabilities, where you give supplements for extra costs that they have. So it's an equal basic income. And it's reduced inequality and induced greater empathy and social solidarity. These are findings which I've summarized in that book. And it's, it's a global thing. That's a global thing. That's why I think South Korea could be the first country because they historically have understood the sense of commoning and the commons. It goes back to the beginning of Korea in 2633 BC. Uh, extraordinary. That ideology, that vision of freedom in a community, but in a community. And this sense, I think, is, is part of what comes from wanting to move in the direction of a proper basic income. And after this pandemic, I think you will find millions more will be active in pursuit of that. We now find a majority in all European countries that have surveyed it, a majority of support for basic income. 
Three years ago, I would have said, you're dreaming, you're dreaming. Well, we must have, we had a, had a brief taste of it in Australia when we increased our, our social security benefits to a, to a, what it was a living wage, to a, a amount of income that provided dignity and, um, and gave people autonomy with their time again, right. which was an extraordinary social experiment. And so we've had a taste of it. Maybe it'll be a bigger part of our future. It's the same in the United States with the stimulus packages, you know. It, it's, it's, uh, in a sense, it's a back, a basic income through the back door. Uh, it's not a proper basic income. I'm not going to pretend otherwise, but it's certainly moved in that direction. And I think it's improved people's perception of, of what it could do. Guy, I, I think we've seen here in Australia and, and also, as you say, in the United States, the way in which a basic income can be transformative in the way that people work, but the way that people live their lives. I wonder, as we begin to draw this conversation to a close, if we could ask you to to reflect a little on what are some of the principles that we need to embrace as we move out of the pandemic and towards a future where we try to address some of these challenges of, of insecurity and the very deep problems that, that you've mapped out for us today? Are there particular principles that we should be embracing that will lead us towards the kinds of mechanisms that will bring positive transformative change? Yeah, I... Thank you for that question. I addressed that in in a broad sense in a book called The Precariat Charter, which was saying, well, what policies would the precariat wish to support that would be different from how the old working class of the 20th century uh, would have proposed? And I think that the challenge for progressive politics now is to achieve the redistribution of the key assets of a modern society. And one of those assets is time. Time is precious asset, and the inequality of control of time is one of the greatest inequalities in modern society. We need a progressive politics of time. We also need to realize that we are suffering as a species from chronic insecurity as well as chronic inequality. And insecurity erodes the human spirit, it erodes the body, and it erodes our respect for nature and our linkage with nature. And you talked about earlier empathy and compassion. We need a strategy to reinvigorate compassion and solidarity. And then I think besides a basic income, which is not a panacea, we need to strengthen voice, the voice of ordinary people, the voice of the precariat. We need collective institutions and mechanisms because vulnerable people will always be vulnerable. And therefore they need, and we're all vulnerable, so we need bodies that represent us in our interests. And you need as many collective bodies as you have interests. And we have a lot of interests. And of course, the most fundamental in the next decade is going to be our interest in preserving nature, preserving ourselves as part of nature, and rolling back this era of pandemics and constant insecurity crises. 
And that is why we have to have a different strategy from GDP growth, a different strategy from the neoliberal rhetoric that is still persisting. And we know in Australia, it's, it's almost comical about, about how a certain brand of politicians use that sort of macho stuff, which wouldn't even look respectable in the early 20th century, let alone now. It looks not just mildly ridiculous, it looks pathetic. And that, I think, is where we stand today. And I would say to any Aussie, and I love Australia, I used to be a professor at Monash, and I'm now an honorary professor at Sydney, so I'm, I'm feeling very, very privileged. And I love coming to Australia. Aussies can understand it. I know many Aussies who are part of the precariat, and they are going to be the energizing ones going forward. And they should have our support. Guy, I think our, person, our, our, our own situation here would be comical if it weren't real. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> we do need to wrap this conversation up uh, and I could, I could certainly talk to you or listen to you uh, for, for a lot longer. Um, it's really great to have you on the podcast again. Um, we do like to finish by asking the one key piece of advice uh, that if we were looking to change the world, and it does strike me in these conversations that we do we spend a lot of time fighting within a system that we know is broken, and there's a real opportunity for for as you started with deep transformation. So, what's your one key piece of advice to policymakers to address the challenge of work in the 21st century? Well, obviously, I'm going to say basic income move in that direction. But in addition to that, I want to say to everybody, me included, you included, that we must be active. We must not be cynical and sit back and just complain. We must actually participate in collective action around whatever it is that gives us our, our buzz, our enthusiasms be it ecological, be it social, be it whatever. We need to reinvigorate democracy. And we need to reinvigorate ourselves as participating in the life of the polis. Public action, public involvement is work. Is work. Some of the best forms of work. And we shouldn't regard that as anything less than any other type of work. It's vital. And that part, I think, is what we should be all doing. Get out and do it. Guy, I think that is excellent advice for everyone to, to heed, and it is the perfect way to end this conversation. We, we do hope that you will join us again in the future on the pod. We'd love having these conversations with you. And thank you so very much for your time and your insights today. Great talking to you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Well, once again, Guy Standing has made us think differently about the world, Anna Greta, made us think more deeply. I think that was just a fantastic conversation. And I have to say that when he gave that that final first step in, in response to your last question, it made me think of um, Scott Ludlam's response in our leadership series to the same question, which is to, to be active, to find your, your people, to find those that you want to work with and to get engaged and to, to be part of bringing about the change that we need. And that's such an optimistic message to finish what in some ways is a fair confronting conversation. 
Absolutely. No, uh, talking or well, listening to Guy Standing talk is just an extraordinary honour and having him on the podcast has been great um, for our second conversation in the last year or so. And, and it was, it was extraordinary how, I don't think he's listened to our leadership series, but our leadership series had these themes. It had themes around the benefits of political engagement, the benefits of, of that shared responsibility, both between leader, but also as a populace, we have responsibility to engage. And it's a, it's a real opportunity for change. He gives a, a roadmap for transformative change. So a few people have described coming to the edge of the cliff, and we know that the economic system that we're working within and the work system that we have around us has has a whole series of significant downsides for for women, for the precariat, for the for the environment. And and he can give us part of the roadmap for what the future might be uh, if we'd like to solve some of these complex problems, uh, which are so important. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I was so interested to hear what he was saying about GDP and that aligns so powerfully with the things that Marilyn Waring was saying about GDP uh, when we spoke to her in this series. And so we really are getting those those common themes and those common problems emerging. But also, as you say, the, the way that we move forward. And Anna Greta, when we were putting this series together, I remember you saying that work is a thread that kind of weaves its way through so many other things. And that's exactly what we heard from Guy, that, you know, work is central to so many parts of our lives, to leadership, to the ways our societies function. And we need to rethink its place and its role um, and how we can make work work for us mm. in the 21st century. Absolutely. So, uh, listeners, you might might have heard from the enthusiasm in both of our voices that we could probably run a, a mini series on work for the rest of this year. There might be one more podcast to draw together the threads of the work series. Um, but please, in the meantime, listeners, or we'd love to hear from you. Please reach out to us either on Twitter at Apps, Apps Policy Forum, A P P S Policy Forum, email us directly at podcast at policyforum net. Join our Facebook group by typing Policy Forum Pod into the search bar and, and joining into that great group of conversations. We love you to subscribe to our podcast. We'd love you to leave a review on our podcast. And we really do value the feedback and take it seriously. We look forward to being back with you again next week. Bye-bye from now. And from me, Sharon Bessel, bye-bye for now. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.